Please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. As we continue in this wonderful Gospel, I want us to take a look at verses 14 through 17 today. But thinking over the next three weeks as we are leading up to Resurrection Sunday, next week and the weeks following, I'm going to shift our focus to uh, the end of the Gospel of Matthew as we begin to ponder and meditate on the resurrection of our Savior, His, His passion, His crucifixion, and His death and resurrection. We're going to take about three weeks leading up to Resurrection Sunday. You realize that's coming quickly. The pagans call it Easter. We call it Resurrection Sunday. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so let's, I want to challenge us all. Be, be, be preparing your heart for that wonderful day of worship because that is, to me, Resurrection Sunday is the crucial day of the year that we remember as a church, even more so than Christmas. As much as I love Christmas, it is the day that our Lord conquered death that we celebrate, and that's why we worship Him. Amen. So today, though, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 8. So if you're able to stand, let's do so in reverence for the reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Let's pray. Dear Lord God Almighty, we thank you for your word. And at this time, we, we ask that you would stir our hearts and prepare our minds to receive an understanding from what you tell us in your word. Lord, I just pray that you'd speak to us words of compassion and words of wisdom, but words into our very being that reminds us of the love that you've given us through your Son, Jesus Christ, that he suffered all that we suffer, yet he conquered death, and he is the one that we lean on for all of our troubles. Lord, that is true in your word. And so, Lord, I pray that this would be a time that those who hear this message, who hear your word read and spoken, that you would use this time for your glory in their lives, that you would stir them up to passion and stir them up to trust you. Let this time be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please have a seat. Alan, God bless you. See, Alan's moved to the front row. This is where all the holiness comes out. Those on the front row get more holiness poured upon them from God's Word. And I say that as well because we have some wonderful children on the front row who are eager to be at the foot of Jesus. You see that? And Daisy, Miss Daisy, I want to commend you. I was watching you sing praises to the Lord up here. Paul, you should be proud of your little girl. She is up here on the front row just singing. That's what we want to see in God's house. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Matthew chapter 8. Now we continue in this wonderful gospel as Jesus is 
healing. It's not that he's beginning his healing ministry in this text. He's already been doing that. We see that back in Matthew chapter 4. But now Matthew in his gospel is showing us more specific interactions between our Lord and those that he heals. We looked at the healing of a leper. We looked at the faith of a centurion and the healing of his servant last week, actually for the last two weeks. And now we, we look at this, it's almost like uh, an intermission in chapter 8 where Matthew reminds us of all that Jesus has done in his ministry. But it's a specific scene where he goes into Peter's house and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then that night, many in the community bring the demon-possessed and the sick to the house of Peter for Jesus to heal. Can you just imagine your neighborhood where there's that one house that everybody gathers at? No, most of the time when that happens in our neighborhood, there's probably not that much good going on in the house if there's that many people. A lot of loud music, etc. But then there's also those houses where there, there's a lot of activity in the house coming and going. And, and then you find out that there's a Bible study or something. That's what happened in Brookside neighborhood here in Allgood several years ago at our house, or every Sunday afternoon, there were cars parked all around our house. Y'all remember that, guys? And uh, and our neighbors would come to us and they'd say, what's going on? And we'd say, well, there's a Bible study. So there is activity in the home that we see as the center of what God does. So whenever we see Jesus and some of the most important aspects of his ministry in the Gospels, it's happening in the home. And most of the time, it's going to be in Peter's home in, Centur- in, in Capernaum. That's where it's going to be. There's going to be a lot of activity here. And so we see this very important scene where Jesus, he just comes to Peter's house. He loves on her, on his mother-in-law, heals her from a fever and mighty things happen. Now, the idea of healing ministry is really nothing new. I mean, it, it, it would, we would be wrong to consider that the modern incarnation of the healing movement is something that is unique to the church. And that seems to be part of the twist and the, and the fallacy, uh, and actually the heresy of what we see as the modern healing movement. They act as if it's something that's never happened before, or it's something that's new that God is doing. We would be wrong to consider that, because there's evidence in ancient times, even before Christ, and even in the pagan literature, you're going to see uh, stories of traveling healers or these diviners who would call upon whatever pagan deity they followed, and they would call down healing or they would call down a prophecy or they'd even curse those who were against them. And we have this, uh, this, this idea of healing ministry that has been influential upon us that has come out of the, he- the heightened interest of, of mysticism and spirituality from the 18th and 19th centuries of our, of our culture the Jansenists from the 1730s. This was a movement uh, by a man by the name of Jansen who he, he would prophesy and he would call down healing upon those who came to his meetings. And there was this movement of spiritual healing. Even John Wesley in the 1700s during his ministry, there is, he, he expressed clear interest repeatedly of spiritual healing. He was very interested and these kind of things. You read some of his diaries and you read some of his letters to his friends and he's he's speaking often about circumstances where family members are sick and, and people in his church are sick and he's calling upon the Lord to heal them. So he's very interested in this as well. 
And then even in uh, around 1800, there was a movement called the Catholic Apostolic Church. Absolutely nothing to do with the Catholic Church that we know, but it was another healing movement. And so this is nothing new. The, the problem we have here is that many of these modern incarnations of healing ministries and healing movements have kind of distorted what the Bible says about it. We can see similar error in some of this misunderstanding in Acts chapter 8 when we read about Simon the magician. You ever read about him in, in Acts chapter 8? When we read in the book of Acts, this is the early years of the church. Uh, the church is growing among the Gentiles, and Philip the deacon, uh, who actually is martyred later, he, he, he preaches Christ in Samaria. And while he preaches Christ in Samaria among those converts, the Bible tells us there was this man by the name of Simon. And he was known for doing great magic. And the, the people even said that he possessed the power of God that is called great. That was his reputation before his conversion. This pagan charlatan, by the grace of God, he hears the truth of the gospel. He hears Philip preaching and, and he actually comes to faith. We see that in the text in Acts chapter eight. Yet this young new convert, Simon the magician, he's misguided. And he sees the apostles praying for folks and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And so he comes to the apostles wanting that Holy Spirit power. I'll buy it from you. And he is actually, and this is what I love about the gospel, about the, the, the book of Acts and the New Testament. We see, even though there's error, especially in the young believer, the, the apostles correct him and he receives it. He says, yes, I was wrong. This misguided young believer, he, he wants to lay hands on people for his own, his own edification, but he receives rebuke and he responds with humility. And so this passage, I think, can be a foundation for our understanding concerning the modern day healing movements, the, the word of faith movements that, that many of us are scared of. And I think rightly so, we should avoid the word of faith movement. We should avoid the calling down of healing upon people. That's not what we see in Scripture. You see, even though healing is clearly one of Christ's attributes, healing is not a parlor trick, nor is it something that we call down. It's not something we manifest on our own through our faith. We don't see that in Scripture. Acts of healing are clearly biblical. We can't avoid that. But healing is not something that is a gift to be used it is a sign that points to something bigger. This is what we see in the text, that healing is a sign that points to salvation through Jesus Christ himself. He does come in the Gospels, and we see repeatedly that he heals. But even though he is healing physical ailments, even though he's casting out demon possession, that's not the end of it. That is just something pointing to a greater purpose and a greater truth, which is that Christ has arrived to bring salvation to the oppressed, to bring salvation to the fallen. Amen? That's what this is about. And so Matthew chapter 8, when we read verses 14 through 17, we see a scene in the life of Jesus where a great healing occurred, but then even more healing follows because people are attracted to it. Today, let's try to figure out what this is about, because chapters 8 and 9 over the next few months, we're going to be full of healing encounters with Jesus. We're going to see a lot of different encounters in these chapters where Jesus is in, engaged with demon possession and, and healings. 
and also other great miracles and signs. So we're getting into the next couple of months here, several weeks of some very deep things we got to understand, okay? So let's try to grasp what God is showing us in the coming weeks. Did these signs and wonders that Jesus was known for occur? Sure they did. Do these signs and wonders still occur today? That's kind of where the rubber meets the road, right? What do the signs and the miracles of the gospel tell us? What is their purpose? That's what we're going to see. Here's what the great theologian B.B. Warfield said, and I shared this quote with you uh, back last summer when we were in Matthew chapter 4. The great B.B. Warfield says this, When our Lord came down to earth, He drew heaven with Him. The signs which accompanied His ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which He brought from heaven, which is His home. The number of the miracles which he wrought may easily be underrated. It has been said that, in effect, Jesus banished disease and death from Palestine for the three years of his ministry. That's how impactful Jesus' miracles were and really still are. While he was alive on this earth in his three years of ministry, his reputation was so vast that you could argue disease was banished almost fully during his time. Do you know any name it and claim it preacher who can even come close to that record? Any faith healer who claims to be as powerful as Jesus, I don't think we see evidence of that in today's word of faith movement, do we? So you see the contrast here? You see how great Jesus is in his miracles and his signs and his wonders. It is so vast, that's the very definition of miracle. It is beyond description. And it is so grand and so great, it stands out as something that is not normal. That is the definition of miracle. And this is our Lord Jesus Christ who is known for this. Because we can fall into a problem as Thoughtful Christians, and I'm the first one to say we should be thoughtful Christians because if we're not thinking, we're prone to follow into error. Yet we are also prone as thinking Christians to ignore the truth of the Gospels that Jesus was a miracle worker, and he still is. Amen? So Matthew's account of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law is what we're looking at today. Now, if you're taking notes and if you want to flip with your finger back and forth in your Bible, this account in Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 17 is also found in Luke's gospel, chapter 4, verses 38 through 39. And again, Luke always kind of gives us a few more details than than Matthew does, but the encounters are the same. So if you're taking notes, you're welcome to do that. But we see in these two passages that Jesus is in Capernaum and he's coming from the synagogue, especially in the Luke's account. When we see Luke's account, he mentions very clearly that he has come from the synagogue and he, in other words, he'd been worshiping on the Sabbath. Jesus had been in God's house. He'd been in the synagogue with other people. And Luke's account says that he healed, he actually cast out a demon from a man who was in the synagogue that day. And so you can imagine the word that spread from that encounter. (laughs) And so he's coming to Peter's house. This is what's following. After after church, where great things happen, he's going to Peter's house. And we see that Peter 
and his mother-in-law are there. This is in Capernaum. Now, Peter, this is the interesting thing. We got to understand Peter here. Peter was called as a disciple of Jesus back in Matthew chapter 4. So we know that Peter must have been with Jesus as he's beginning his ministry and these great crowds begin to follow. Peter is witnessing all of this. Everywhere that Jesus goes, all of the teaching that he has given, Peter was right there. Peter has watched the reputation of his master and his teacher grow exponentially. We know that Peter was part of the great crowds. And as Jesus begins to heal in in, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says that Jesus began to heal every disease and every affliction among the people. This was part of his ministry from the very beginning. And Peter was witnessing every bit of it. He was right there. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, if you want to flip back over there, we we looked at this uh, back last summer, but Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, we see exactly what Jesus was doing. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Very simple. In this one verse, we see that Jesus' fame spread, and his fame spread because the sick received health. The afflicted received freedom. And we see that the oppressed, and, and the implication here of the oppressed, are those who are oppressed by demons. They receive restoration and freedom from the oppression. In verse 24, he healed them. Now, back here in Matthew chapter 8, let's figure out some background on Simon Peter as we understand as Jesus enters Peter's house. We've got to understand Peter. Peter's an interesting guy. We think of Peter as a biblical character, don't we? And here's the error. If we only read Scripture and we think of men like Simon Peter as just a Bible character, we're going to miss the reality that he was a man. So let's try to understand here this scene. We read in the Gospels and even in the book of Acts all that Peter is doing. Who he was with Jesus for most of Jesus' ministry. He's a man. He stumbled often. He's passionate to a fault. You know those folks? They're so eager and energetic. They're passionate almost to the point that they get in trouble. (laughs) That's Peter. But he's also a man who dearly love his, loves his rabbi. He loves Jesus, his master and his teacher. That's where his passion is directed. Here we, in, in this scene, here in Matthew chapter 8, we see the same man, and here's what we get here. When Je- and when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. That one verse tells us quite a bit. Number one, we see that he had a home and a family. Because we think about uh, Peter when he's called by Jesus where he left everything at the boat and follows Jesus, we can mistakenly think that he abandoned everything. He had a home. He had a family. He had responsibilities. He had he had, had life. He had a business. He struggled with taxes. He had prejudices. He has fears, a lot of fears, (laughs) especially in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10, I mean, God really deals with his prejudices and his fears, doesn't he? Beyond this text as well, and these are some of the church traditions, beyond this, scriptures 
There are ancient stories of at least one child, a crippled daughter by the name of Petronella. That's church tradition. He had a crippled daughter. That's what church tradition says. So we know that Peter lived in Capernaum. And, and here's the thing about Capernaum. Capernaum was known as the village of Nahum, the minor prophet. You realize that's where he came from? We studied Nahum on Wednesday night, uh, when did, back in the fall? Yeah, we were going through the minor prophets back in the fall, and we went through Nahum, right? Nahum was this minor prophet who prophesied against the Assyrian invaders of Israel, more specifically against Nineveh, because Nineveh was uh, the capital of Assyria. And if you remember Nineveh, Nineveh repented after Jonah prophesied. Yet by the time of Nahum, Nineveh had recanted their <laughs> repentance and were just more evil and vile than they ever were before. And that was Nahum's prophecy. He came from Capernaum. That's an interesting connection. So reliable church tradition, we kind of pinpoints the location of Peter's home. Tradition kind of says this, we kind of know where his house was in Capernaum. Archaeologists have worked on this site for centuries and they've actually uncovered thousands of fish hooks. Does that mean that it was Peter's fish hooks? We don't know. Capernaum was on the lake. He was on the Sea of Galilee. So clearly you would have found fish hooks. But archaeologists and most biblical scholars argue this is most likely where Peter's house was. It was a two-story home with several rooms and a courtyard, not a shack. This was the scene of many of those early gatherings where people would crowd at the door to hear Jesus. We, we suspect this is where Jesus, his base of ministry was. Perhaps even Jesus had his own room as he stayed with Peter and his family. I want us to understand the background here when we look at, math, at Matthew chapter 8. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he wasn't just a casual guest. This was his base of operation. This would have been as close to family, away from family, as Jesus had. As Jesus enters Peter's home, he's coming from the synagogue. That's what Luke chapter 4 tells us. Now in Peter's home, they find his mother-in-law. What does it say? She, in, in, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 14, his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Luke's gospel goes a little bit deeper and says it was a high fever, right? This would have been a dangerous situation in ancient Palestine. Right? You didn't have Tylenol. We get the impression that this was a sudden occurrence. Perhaps while the men were at the synagogue that day, perhaps the mother-in-law became ill during that time. And I would say that the time in the synagogue was more than just a one-hour worship service. The tradition then was the men would be there all day in the synagogue. So a lot of could have happened during that time. So we get the impression that this was a sudden occurrence. And Matthew's account says that Jesus, verse 15, he touched her hand and the fever left her. But Luke's account says that Jesus rebuked the fever. That's in verse 39. So there's a little bit of a different account here, but I still think it's the same point. If Jesus touches her hand, that shows gentleness and compassion. The rebuke of the fever is just Jesus' attitude toward the illness. Now, someone conclude that Jesus, because in Luke's account we see that he rebuked a demon, likewise he rebuked the fever. Some, are, some have actually taken that to conclude that Jesus... Eat, when he sees demon possession as the cause of disease and suffering. Now, that can happen, but it's not necessarily always the case. Demon possession is real. 
Sickness is real. Can we say amen? How many people have been sick this year? Both are connected to evil, though. And we're going to unpack that here in a bit. But demon possession, let me say, is spiritual. It's a spiritual issue. Now, it can cause illness, but not always. In other words, not all illnesses are just demon possession. That's the error of the Word of Faith movement and the healing preachers. Because they make the error, based on what they see in Luke chapter 4 in this account, that demon possession is rebuked, healing or a fever is rebuked, so therefore demons and healing or our sickness must be connected always. Not necessarily the case. Here's why, here's why we can see this. Because when we look here in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is dealing with his mother, with Peter's mother-in-law, why is she sick? We don't get any indication that she was possessed by a demon. Not at all. In either text. It's actually a showcase of what it means to be human. Especially an elderly woman. The older we get, the more, the more infirmities we encounter. It's just part of getting old. And so that's what we see here. This, this mother-in-law of Peter, has done, there's no indication in the scriptures that she was sinful, which caused her sin or her illness. We see no indication here that she was possessed by a demon, which would have caused her illness. She was just sick, dangerously so, but she was sick. It was, it was a natural result of being in a fallen world and being a, an aging person, the troubles of being an elderly woman. That's really what we're seeing here. So actually, it's going to, it would be shameful and actually uncharitable to condemn this mother-in-law for being sick, as many would erroneously try to do. This mother-in-law of Peter did nothing to deserve her high fever. It was just a part of being in a fallen world with germs and disease. That's all it is. But Jesus touches her hand, an act of kindness, an act of gentleness, he rebukes the sin, he rebukes the fever, but he does not rebuke her. So what we see in this is an act of compassion, and that's it. Jesus does heal miraculously, but the bigger picture here is he, we see as Jesus is healing Peter's mother-in-law, he's showing kindness and compassion to her ailments and her circumstance. You see that? That, I think, is the greater truth that we see here. Was it a miracle that he healed her high fever? Absolutely. I'm not diminishing that at all. But when we elevate the healing over the greater truth of Jesus's love and compassion for her in her ailment, then we miss the bigger points. Jesus heals in the scriptures as an act of compassion, which also points people to the great love of heaven as a result. That's why he's doing this. Jesus has compassion for our circumstances, and we live in a fallen world full of disease and ailments. And Jesus has compassion for us in that. He comes to preach the message of the kingdom of heaven. And what is the kingdom of heaven? It's also the big, a, a, a significant primary purpose of the kingdom of heaven is God's love for his, his people, God's love for his creation. It's God's charity toward us that he sends Jesus Christ into our world to love us, to preach the gospel, to show us what it means to be saved. He's shown not only acts of healing, but in these acts of healing, Jesus is going to ultimately show us forgiveness of sin. That's where this is going. 
So this, this connection to sin and grace is what Jesus is doing as he performs miracles and wonders. While the physical acts of healing are miracles, trust me, if I'm sick and I'm suddenly better, hallelujah. I, I've told this story before, but my son Logan, when he was, he might have been eight months old, maybe, maybe eight or nine months old, helpless, had a high, high fever. One that we could not bring down with anything. And I was alone with him. We only had one car. I was alone at the house with, with Logan. We only had one car. I couldn't take him to the emergency room if I'd wanted to. And I'm sitting there in his, his nursery in his room in the floor with him, just rocking back and forth with him like this. And I'm crying out to God because his fever was so high. Nothing I could do about it. And I could feel the heat. You, ever, you know, you know, when you carry the babies and you just feel the heat. And I'm just praying to the Lord and I'm really pouring out my heart to him as a father, helpless in that situation. And I suddenly felt him begin to cool down. I can only account that the Lord heard my prayers at that moment. And he, and he caused that, that fever to diminish. I give him credit for that. Amen. So healing does happen, but it's an act of compassion. It's not connected to demon possession. Okay. That's what I want us to see. So let's look here at Matthew chapter 8, verse 16. That evening they brought to him, this is after he heals Peter's mother-in-law. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. You see, Jesus didn't have to have a, a sideshow to heal anybody. That's the one thing I want to bring out. Comparing what Jesus does in the Gospels with the healing ministries that you see on television and on the Internet. It's not TV anymore. It's all Internet, YouTube stuff, right? Notice the sideshow in a healing ministry versus what Jesus is doing here. He gently touches the mother's hand. He speaks a word. Nothing extravagant. He's got all authority and power. He doesn't need the sideshow. Amen? <laughs> you see the difference here? It says here in verse, uh, verse 16, they brought to him many. So who are they? I think it's clear that Jesus' teaching and healing and his exorcisms had built such a large reputation that when people heard that Jesus was in town and they heard what happened at the synagogue with casting out the demon and they heard what probably happened at Peter's house, here they come. Rightly so. Because if you are in desperate need... You're going to go wherever you can to find the answers. Amen? So here they come. As the Sabbath evening began, when you could leave your houses, the villagers in Capernaum felt free to approach Jesus with their family and their friends. They brought those who were, who were possessed by demons. They brought those who were sick, and they drew close to him. This passage tells us much about our needs as much as we see the needs of the people there, right? We live in a fallen, broken world. Life is hard. Life is difficult. If not disease, we suffer body aches. If not body aches, we suffer depression and anxiety. If not anxiety, we may suffer abuse. Well, this goes on and on and on. You see, we live in a fallen world that we know is difficult. That's why it's hard to wake up in the morning and get out of bed. That's why it's hard to go to work. That's why it's hard to love on our kids and continue to love on our kids. They drive us nuts. We love them. Our spouses, our co-workers, our neighbors, 
Life is hard. Amen? To summarize this in verse 16, what do we see? All of us are weak and all of us are fallen. All of us are suffering and all of us are in need of compassion. That's a great place for an amen. We're all in need for compassion. We need it. All of us are in need of hope. Therefore, we're drawn to the light that Jesus Christ is. That's what we're seeing here. They're bringing the oppressed, the sick, the downtrodden to Jesus. They're drawn to him. And so verse 16 tells us that Jesus, he's expressing his authority over creation and he's expressing his authority as well over the supernatural, over the demon possession and the healing of the bodies. He touched the sick or he spoke to them and the demons were cast out. They were healed. I can, I, can you just imagine being in that time, in that place, hearing the stories, perhaps witnessing the events? Can you imagine how that would affect you? That's what I want us to see here. Jesus confronted the demons and he showed compassion to the sick. As it says here at the end of verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. Now, if you flip over to Isaiah 53, Let's take a look here and see what's going on. Because Matthew has given us this text for a reason. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 3. Let's read verses 3 through 6. And what Matthew quotes is actually verse 4. Matthew chapter, I mean, so Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 3. Speaking about... This is what has been called the servant song. The servant song begins in chapter 52, verse 13, and that those verses and following through verse 12 of chapter 53 has been called the servant song. It's the song of the coming Messiah, the servant who sacrificed his life. That's what we're looking at here. Look at Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Verse six, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see what Isaiah is saying here? Now, the, the translation of Isaiah 53, 4 in the Old Testament is a bit different than what Matthew uses in, 50, in, in um, Matthew chapter 8, verse 17. If you compare the wording here in your translations, it's probably radically different. But the meaning is here. When it says in Isaiah 53, 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, it's translated in Matthew's gospel, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. There's not an error there. It's just a difference between Hebrew and Greek <laughs> because Matthew would have been citing what has been called the Greek Septuagint, which would have been the Greek translation of the old Hebrew text. 
And the words were translated a little bit differently, not at an error, but actually giving us a deeper meaning. So even in math, in, in Isaiah 53, 4, when Isaiah says, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, that's the same thing as saying our illnesses and our diseases. It really is. Because when you are ill, <laughs> are you grieving? <laughs> right? When you are in diseased, are you in sorrowful? It's the same idea. That's what we're talking about here. So the, the idea of illness and disease, when we limit it to the physical, we're missing the greater purpose of grief and sorrow, right? In Isaiah 53, verse 3, Jesus is said to be burdened with grief and sorrow. Why? When you read that passage in its context, it's grief and sorrow of our sin. He's taking the sin upon himself, and in doing so, he's bringing upon himself our grief and our sorrow that we have to suffer through every single day. Jesus willingly takes upon himself our grief and our sorrow. Likewise, in verse 5 of Isaiah 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Now again, this verse, uh, Isaiah 53, 5, has been used by the healing movement to say that Jesus' stripes in his passion and his punishment actually took our diseases. We are physically healed because Jesus suffered physically. Let's figure out what this means. Uh, I don't think that's what Isaiah is saying. Flip over to 1 Peter. Let's flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2 because 1 Peter chapter 2 actually addresses this very verse. You see where we're headed? Now remember, it was Peter who knew Jesus as a great healer. He witnessed healing. He learned what Jesus was doing. So who better else to help us understand what Isaiah's prophecy is speaking about than Peter himself? I would trust Peter's word. He was there. We see it. His mother-in-law was healed. <laughs> Peter actually witnessed many miracles and wonders as Jesus' ministry grew. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, here's what it says. He himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took our sin upon him physically on the tree. That's the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Peter is quoting Isaiah 53, uh, uh, verse 5 here, because he's showing us what Jesus was doing in his healing ministry and even in his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Jesus willingly took upon himself all of our sorrow, all of our grief, all of our physical ailments, all of our wounds, whether they're physical wounds or emotional wounds, he took them upon himself as he hung on that cross. That's what Peter's saying. So that, that's what Peter says, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So if Jesus is taking upon himself our sin and the sorrow and the suffering that sin brings, do we stop there and say, hallelujah, I'm healed, and then live like demons? No. 
The purpose of Jesus' sacrifice was so that we might die to sin, so that it would no longer consume us, so that it would no longer bring us sorrow and pain, so that we would no longer be controlled by the devil and his demons, so that we would no longer be controlled by evil thoughts and sinful actions, that we would rise above that as Jesus himself rose above it, as we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We are able to rise above the sorrow and the grief and the sin and the pain and live to righteousness. See where we're going? That's good news, folks. Amen? (laughs) So, why is this? Now, we have to ask ourselves, if Jesus was, if He took on our our sin and our grief, if, if He takes on our illnesses and bears our diseases, why do we still get sick? Why do we still suffer in this fallen world and the sin and the torture and the trauma and all that? Why are we still living in a suffering world? Why is that? If Jesus did all this, why are we still suffering? The answer is, here's the theological term, realized eschatology. If you want to write that down, it really basically means this. The kingdom of heaven is already here. It's not yet complete. Because we know that Jesus is coming back. We know that when he comes back, he's going to gather his church and he's going to usher in an eternal kingdom here on earth. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. This is what we see in Revelation chapter 21. We're not going to turn there, but if you want to read that, you can. Revelation chapter 21 is the not yet complete. It comes. Amen. The words of Isaiah do not conclude that all sickness and disease are eradicated When Jesus comes, what it means is that when the new heaven and the new earth replaces the first heaven and the first earth, Revelation 21 verse 1, then and only then will we no longer suffer physically the way we do now. That's it. No longer will there be death as we know it now. Something radical is coming in the future. There is a new heaven and a new earth that will 100% replace what we are living in now. And that's a promise. That's an eternal hope. So now at the end of time, when the final judgment comes, when God's word says that we will suffer no more, that all disease will be gone, that all tears will be wiped away, that there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. It says in Revelation 21, the first things have passed away and the new things are here. That is an eternal hope of the Christian. And what is Jesus doing in his ministry in the Gospels? He's pointing to heaven. (laughs) When he heals Peter's mother-in-law, when he casts out demons, when he heals all who come to him who are oppressed physically, emotionally, and spiritually, what's he doing? That's not the last of the, that's not the last of the ministry. That's not the end all. That's just the beginning that points to an eternal conclusion that's still yet to come. Amen. That's how we need to understand healing. That's how we need to understand what Jesus is doing in the Gospels. I'm so glad that Jesus did heal. I'm so glad that God still does heal. But He does not heal based on my command. Can we just say so? God will heal as He decides to heal. And I will argue that even loved ones who have suffered a a terminal illness and they've passed on to heaven... Let me tell you, that's the ultimate healing. There's no more better healing than that. And until you've experienced that with a loved one, until you've held the hand of someone who breathed their last breath, 
and you weep and you cry and you mourn, if they are in Christ and Christ is in them, hallelujah, they've got a hope that the, the sinner doesn't. That's the best healing of all. Amen. Let me pray for you. Dear Father God, we thank You for Your Word. And You've given us evidence and example and example and example and example and story after story after story of Jesus engaging our sinful world. He meets us in the midst of our sorrow and our grief. He meets us in the midst of our illness and our disease. He meets us, Father, in the midst of this this fallen world that we are in, that we caused. And so, God, the hope of Your Son, Jesus Christ, is amazing. As we read these stories, as we even see uh, firsthand those rare occurrences that You actually act and heal. Dear God, that's an amazing thing that points us to Your heaven. As Jesus brings heaven with Him, as He comes to this earth, He brings heaven with Him, and we see a glimpse of what eternal glory is going to be like when we watch people recover from disease, when we read in Scripture what Jesus is doing. And dear God, I pray that You would remind us that this is our comfort. This is the compassion that You are bringing to us through Your Son, Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing. We give You praise for that. We thank You for that. And so, God, I pray that You would pour out Your love and Your compassion on everyone in this room at the moment. Dear God, whatever they're suffering through, it may not be a physical illness. It could be physical. It could be emotional. It could just be life. It's hard. Dear God, would You touch their hand gently as Jesus touches the hand of Peter's mother-in-law? And will you make things all right? That's what we pray for today. Lord, as we close this time of worship, I pray that you would comfort our hearts, that you would meet us where we are. We thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.